We, like I said, we're finishing this study that we've been on. We've been studying the four songs that are in Advent. The New Testament doesn't have as many songs as the Old. There's, if you were to do the count, there's far more in the Old Testament, and almost all of them are in the Advent, and all of the ones for the Advent are all in the Gospel of Luke. He's four for four. Each song is unique to the book he wrote on it. So I feel like it would be worth it this morning to talk about how was the Gospel of Luke composed. It is uh, the only Gospel... Uh, that was not written by one of the 12. Luke is a Greek. He's, he's, it's actually one of the only books, might be the only book written by a non-Hebrew uh, at all. Um, Luke uh, wrote this book as research. He was a Greek convert, and he wanted to find out more about who Jesus was. Both of them are written to uh, one particular person. Uh, for instance, the Gospel of Luke starts with, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those uh, who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself, or, or since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may be, uh, excuse me, so that you may have certainty of the things we've been taught. And so he's writing this book like an investigative journalist looking at uh, interviewing people using the Gospel of Mark as a base and building upon it. Uh, he has researched it extremely well, notes, uh, written everything down. In fact, there's something interesting. Luke has a high concentration of unique stories around the Advent. Uh, he's the only one with the songs. There's certain parts of uh, the Christmas story that's only in Luke. And there's also a, a high concentration of what Mary was thinking and feeling at moments, leading a lot of people to believe that this material came from probably interviewing Mary herself. Uh, she was still alive at the time he composed this book. And if he's saying he's investigated everything from the beginning, I doubt he skipped someone who was one of the very first eyewitnesses. So he's put a lot of work into this. And the reason it's worth knowing that is that this book is composed as one complete thing. He's put a lot of thought into it from the time he writes the first word. He knows where he wants it to end. He sat down and composed this book on purpose in order. The order, the sequence, the timing, it all matters for the collective things that Luke is saying. And so as we've been going through these four songs, it ends with this one. And this is one that he definitely wrote details about, composed in such a way to summarize these awakening moments each one of the, of the songs that breaks out in the Advent is this awakening where everybody sees Jesus, but some people really saw who he was. They connected with what was going on, and praise and joy, exuberance, and fullness bursts out of them, and these uh, songs just materialize, these songs of worship. So he's composed these two-part stories. Uh, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke, we call simply Luke. He wrote the, the Acts of the Apostles, we call that simply Acts. They're two volumes, part of one complete work, all to Theophilus, that he would know the details of how Christ did his work, how the church started, so that he could teach from them. So each detail matters, the timing matters, and this fourth song is a summary of the things that we are meant to glean from the Advent, the people that were awakened to it, and how the songs show who was awakened. The people who were dead, the people that thought Jesus was another baby, aren't singing, they're not awakened, it's those who are. And as we look at this last story, it's the one that's meant you're meant to dwell on, summarize the rest of them, and really um, think about. And it's an important place to end this study. Because if you want to find Christ this season, you need to look where he was found when he initially arrived those that really saw him and worshiped him. 
knew who he was, and this is its summary. So we're going to begin uh, reading uh, in, we're going to be in Luke 2, we're going to start in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law, a pair of doves or two pigeons. Now, this, this purification rite, it is a purification rite for Mary and for Jesus. And Joseph is there for support and to carry things, perhaps. <laughs> but they go to Jerusalem for this purification rite, and it's a purification rite because she's given birth. There's sort of this purification of, of coming out of that. There's a set time that they would have to offer a sacrifice and also offer one for the dedication of the firstborn son. And what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. It's probably worth to say before we get there that these details matter to Luke. He wants Theophilus to understand something, that following God and being faithful, doing the things that's required in the law is critical for being in the right place at the right time to be where you're supposed to be because what, the, what this family experiences at the end of the set time, there were so many days, I believe it was 15 days. I just read the law. I should know this. I read it in Leviticus. So many days after birth, you had to go in and do purification rites for yourself as a mother and you would dedicate the son. And so this is a set time. They go exactly when they're supposed to because Joseph and Mary are very devout. They follow the law and they're very obedient to it. So Joseph and Mary find themselves at the right place at the right time because they follow God with faithfulness, and the rest of this amazing event bursts in front of them. Now, the requirement in Leviticus is interesting. It's, it's actually a lamb that you're supposed to offer, but it gives a provision. In uh, Leviticus 12.8, uh, it says, but if she, the mother, cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, which means that they were giving the offering of the poor because Joseph and Mary were poor. So Jesus is given this dedication with uh, what the poor would offer. And there were many sacrifices made at that temple for purification rites and a lot of lambs given, but none could compare to the sacrifice that is represented in this poor man's offering, of the poor's offering. None are so blessed, none are met with this song of praise because the price doesn't matter. It's about the heart and it's about the dedication. That God would inspire that it's that being devout isn't just for the rich that can afford to raise a lamb, it's for those who have to get birds. And in fact, there's even one more knockdown. If you can't afford the birds, you can bring a handful of grain. What mattered, what was critical at the heart of the law, at the heart of, of the new covenant, is that it's not the price or the exuberance that matters or the, the, the opulence that matters. It is the heart of the matter. It's the dedication. That's what makes the sacrifice worth it. Do not accept the lie of the world that, that life is for the wealthy and for the poor it passes them by. That for the wealthy that can travel where they want to go, buy the things they want to buy, they will live life to the fullest and the rest of us will watch it pass us by. Because the real things of life, the things that are so priceless, they're more, cost, they're more costly than gold and of silver, are equally available to the rich and to the poor. In fact, Scripture's warning is very clear that it is wealth that makes it harder to find the kingdom of heaven and not poor, or, or being poor. 
Wealth, not poverty, is a far greater challenge to finding the kingdom. As it says in the Song of Zechariah, the poor will be filled, but the wealthy go away hungry. Your Christmas is not dependent on the quality of gifts or food. What really matters is the heart and dedication with which we give them. That's the thing that makes them meaningful. In this kingdom of heaven, it's for all. It is easiest to see the kingdom of heaven when you're not distracted by material comforts. In the same way that one would far more readily eat a nutritious meal, the dinner at the end of the day, if they're not snacking on junk food all afternoon, you are far more likely to see Jesus and get who he is if you haven't called the comforts of this world, the promises of life and the fullness of it all. If you have wealth, uh, do not settle and call it the good life because the fact is is that our grip on what the good life should be, the meaning of life, the, the wholeness of it should be a thing that we still hold it in our hands if we lose absolutely everything and we're forced into abject poverty. That is the, that is the happiness of life and that is the joy of it. The true good life to you is not less available to you if you're in abject poverty. There is an offering for the poor and an offering for the rich in that Leviticus code. And what matters that it's, is that each person gives with the fullness of their heart. The rich, do not, or the rich are not blessed more for the poor because they have more material to give. In fact, one of the strongest biblical themes is that the poor uh, are often blessed more than the rich. And this isn't because God loves the poor more, but it's because the poor are far more hungry for the kingdom of heaven than the rich often are. And so there's just this desire for something deeper and something greater when you don't have something that placates you in the meantime. And as this little child will grow up to one, sit, one day say when he's a man, blessed are those for hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Those who want what God wants and desires what he wants, they're the ones who are filled with joy and filled with life in the same way that this poor man's sacrifice means so much more. One of our figures in the story comes up next. Uh, his story, let's see, he begins in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and uh, the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple uh, when the parents brought the child to do uh, for him what was the custom in the law or the custom of the law required. Simeon is this man of incredible faithfulness, often painted old, but we actually don't have his age. They assume he's old because his counterpart it says she was old, but we don't know his age, but he likely was. Christ came for a purpose, though. He came to comfort Israel and to deliver them. That's what consolation means, sort of like to console a child, to make things right, to bind up wounds and to deliver them out. And Simeon cared about the purposes that God was about, and he sought them with all of his heart. If you want to find Jesus, put your heart and put your soul into the things that matter to the Father and what he's about. God is protector of the helpless. He is the bringer of justice, and he is the feeder of the poor. And if you go where the Lord goes and care what the Lord cares about, you'll be with him. It's an amazing detail that the Spirit is on him, because this is after 400 years that it says the word of the Lord is scarce. 
It's a big deal because Simeon hungered and thirsted for this, and he was filled. I want to read the song now. It says that Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you, have, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. We've had songs or names for each of the songs as they come along. We had uh, first was the Magnificent Mary song. We had, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting Zechariah's song. What was it? I don't remember now. Doxology is the angels. He's the benediction. That's right. This one is the nunc dimittis, nunc dimittis, which I know sound, it sounds like a playful insult, doesn't it? Like, how you doing, you old nunc dimittis? Yeah. And the nunc dimittis are like, whoa, you can't use that word. <laughs> Only we can use that word. And I go, I didn't know. I didn't know your people's struggles. Um, but no, nunc dimittis is Latin for now dismiss. It's the key phrase in that song. It's the heart of it. You may now dismiss to be so filled. For Simeon, the work of the Messiah was enough. To see the Messiah is enough. The gift of the Savior is so great that if God never did another thing, ever, from that point on, he would be completely worthy of our praise and adoration. That we could say, that's enough. I don't need all the other blessings. I don't need everything else that I'm wanting and thinking about. This is enough. You may dismiss me. Satisfaction is full when you really see it. You know, I think Simeon's passions, they're formed from years of dedication to the kingdom, waiting and desiring, wanting to see happen what God wanted to happen. And now he finds he loves Christ just as God loves Christ and anticipates his work with joy and declares that his life is full. This hope is twofold. That's very interesting. Light to the Gentiles, glory to Israel. Light to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are those who do not know God. They do not know his ways. It is like they're in a room full of furniture with the lights shut off and they're walking and they're bumping. They can't find the exit. And the Messiah will be the light that comes on when they can see the world finally for what it really is. When they can see the way, the truth, and the life, they can see the way out of the room and they have a choice now to walk in obedience to it and to come out. Christ is a light to show them the way forward. And for the Jews, those that knew God, it is, an, it is bringing honor and glory onto them that their faith has not been in vain. That Christ will do these two things for these two people. And I, the, the amazing thing is that is still who Jesus is today. To a lost world, he is a light. That as they come to Christ, as they hear what he says, the light comes on, they can see life for what it is, and they have a choice as how they're going to live. And for the waiting saints, he brings honor and vindication that our hope is not in vain. Christ Emmanuel is the hope of a lifetime. One that when you have it, you're like, my life is over. You may now dismiss me of a complete lifetime. And that's the power of this song, is it not? You can dismiss me because I'm satisfied. You can send me away because I've held the promise in my hands. You find it when you partner with him, and when you want what he wants. Simeon follows this, this uh, final song with a prophecy to the family. He says to them, uh, it says here that the child's father and mother uh, marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Uh, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign uh, that will be spoken against so that the thoughts uh, of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's interesting that he, he will be, the, the sign that Jesus is who he says he will be is that people will fall and people will rise. It is obvious that he will be the Messiah because people are going to believe in him and it's going to be equally obvious he is the Messiah because people will doubt him. It's an amazing uh, dual story here. What happens to those who believe and those who doubt? Both are signs. You cannot base truth on what is popular because the things that, because sometimes people do not agree and will not see and will not admit what is true, even though it is very apparent in front of them. And that wrong group could be the majority. That Christ is the way that is out, that he is the hope and the life of all of Israel. And the most tragic thing about that nation's story is that as a whole, they've rejected that. That as a, that as a majority, they've rejected that. He has caused the rising and falling of many. You cannot base your hope on what is popular. Your hope of this season um, needs to be believed by you and doesn't need to be believed by everybody else. That it is our place to believe, believe in Christ and to believe he is the hope of our life, whether other people believe it or not. None come to the, to the glory of the Father except through him. That Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That is the light that came on in the room in your life when you were able to begin moving forward. And so it won't matter if when, when everybody comes together on Christmas dinner, how many people at your table, it is just a fun holiday. How many people it is a sacred holiday. We should never feel threatened that our faith is somehow losing because the world is gradually disagreeing with us. It is just as true whether they agree or not. That has always been the case from the beginning before the truth was fully revealed. There's one last figure here, and it's Anna. And if you're a child in here that watches Frozen, yes, it's the same name. <laughs> there was also a prophet. Some uh, translations also put that as prophetess because she is a woman. Anna, the daughter of, I mean, I've been trying to figure out how to pronounce this, and I should have just looked it up. Let's say, what do you guys think? Penuel, yeah. Yeah, we'll say, because like, that, that ends similar to my name. So let's just say it sounds just like my full legal name, Samuel, Penuel. Um, of the tribe of Asher, which is a weird detail. We'll come back to that in a minute. She was very old, which is not a weird detail. She had lived with her husband seven years, and after their marriage, uh, seven years after, excuse me, for seven years after her marriage, uh, then was a widow until she was 84. Um, and it's actually, in, in the original language, it's hard to tell if she lived 84 years after being married, which would have her estimated at somewhere around 110. Uh, but 84 would have also been considered uh, aged at that time as well. Uh, she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child and all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, and when Joseph and Mary... Uh, had done everything required of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own uh, town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. 
Anna is a very powerful figure because she's clearly placed in here by Luke to represent the witness of the Old Testament at this moment. One detail that's very odd about her, she's from the tribe of Asher, which would have been incredibly rare. Uh, At this point, the reason we call Israelites Jews is because only one tribe has survived, Judah. They're all gone. They've all been destroyed. Asher was not Judah, meaning that Anna is not a Jew, but she is an Israelite. She is from an ancient tribe that it was almost completely destroyed, except for some way they were able to stay intact long enough to exist and survive among the Jews up until this point. But today, we have no idea where that, those genealogies went to, where those families went to. If you're part of the 10 lost tribes, you're still lost. There's this amazing thing that she's from Asher. It means something from a long tribe of Israel. And her acts of worship that are listed here personify Old Testament worship. The things that she does, it says that she worships in the temple, that she fasted, she prayed, she gave thanks. That is Judaism in a nutshell. That's the whole thing of the Old Testament worship. He's making it very clear with her where he wants to end these songs, where he wants us to stop with, where he wants us to remember from these people that really saw it. Remember, the songs represent people who saw it. Luke's point of her tribal detail, the worship, everything she does, is that keeping God's directives leads to finding Christ. She was dedicated. Simeon was dedicated. Mary and Joseph were dedicated. They are faithful people. It put them in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right heart. If you really want to see who Jesus is, to feel that joy so deeply that honestly, you would have it whether you were poor, you would, have it, you would feel that your life is full whether you die tomorrow, your path forward is faithfulness. Faithfulness is that point when belief becomes action. When we, when we take the beliefs we hold inside and they aren't just things we think, they're not things that are on paper, but they become what we do and we become who we are. It starts with a thought and a belief that we're convinced and held and hold fast that Jesus Christ really was who he claimed to be, that he did die, that he did raise from the dead, that he will return. And those become actions. And actions form into habits, and habits change the heart. And suddenly when the heart is changed, we find that we want what God wants. We labor at what God labors at. And suddenly he's revealed in plain sight. Everybody's going to look at the same details that those who are spiritually awakened will see, but those who are awakened will see where God is in them. And it comes when we live this path of faithfulness, that we, that we keep to it, that we don't just make it simply a belief and a belief system, but it becomes a practice, things that we do, things that form into habits, habits that change us, and those habits make it to where we find ourselves working on things that God is working on, and eventually our hands touch because he is working on the same things that we are. We want the same things he wants. Simeon could have wanted many things. And Anna could have wanted many things. Mary's just a young girl. She could have wanted just a stable family and a better home than she grew up in. But each one of them want what God wants so bad that they see it for what it truly is. And their lives are filled with a kind of joy that money can't buy. That a lamb does not compare to two doves. Where a life is much fuller because of what they inherit. And the way to get between here and there is a life of faithfulness. Whatever humble offering you have, prayer, time, the little things you feel you don't have much, offer it because God accepts the doves. And if you don't have doves, he accepts the grain. 
Whatever little bit you have, offer it up. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You don't have to be wealthy in spirit. Offer what you have with a deep heart the same way that they did. Faithfulness puts us right where we're supposed to be. Just as Simeon and Anna found themselves right where they were supposed to be, they were always at the temple. They were always praying. They were always there. So when the Messiah came, when their chance came before, they were going to, both of them were probably too old to ever see what would really happen. They were going to be too old to be there for the crucifixion. They were going to be too old to be there for the resurrection. They'd be too old to be there on the day of Pentecost when the church gets kicked off and this hope of the new covenant spreads throughout the world. But they got to be there in that moment because they're about the Lord's work. And we find that once we have Christ, our lives really are full with a now dismiss me kind of spirit that that once we really have that, when we see who he truly is, as these four people did, these four stories, we find life to be incredibly full. And Jesus is the light. He's the way. He's the, the path forward. Whether our world agrees with, agrees with us or not, that when we live it faithfully, we don't live it half and half of, what if Jesus isn't true? What's my backup plan? But we go for it completely, entirely, that our only hope is God. So that like Anna, our faith would erupt, like Simeon, our faith would erupt into action, that we could hold that permanent vigil awaiting for the return of the one whose coming was foretold going where he goes, doing what he does, laying our hand to his work and finding him in the midst of all of that. These songs, I think the, the, the final encouragement Luke intended us to take is that faithfulness is what finds Jesus, that, all, that faithfulness changes who we are and we are where we're supposed to be where he is, that everybody watched that baby come in. That was a crowded place. They were doing that sacrifice all day long. Everybody saw him come in, but two people who were faithful were the ones that had their spiritual eyes open and knew who that child was. Everyone's going to see the church. Everyone's going to see Jesus. Everyone's going to know what, what is in this book. They could read it if they want to, but it's those who are faithful, that are formed, that are shaped, whose habits have changed them, that will really see it. And maybe we too, this Christmas season, will see it very differently, that everybody will see Christmas. Everyone will see the nativity scenes. Everybody will know what it's what. Christians supposedly say it's about whether they believe it or not. But for those of us that are faithful to do the work of God, that, that what he matters to him matters to us, it becomes alive. So let's be servers this season. Let's be carers this season. Let's be those who give, who advocate for justice, who take care of people who can't take care of themselves. And as you care for others, you might just find that you're brushing shoulders with God because that's where he is. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would shape and form our hearts. God, I pray that that if we have spent too much time having this be a thinking game, Lord, would you just encourage us that there's a way forward. Even if we have just a little bit to offer now, you receive doves, you receive pigeons. Lord, would you receive the kind of prayer and time and offering and service we can give to people right now? Lord, I pray that as we give and as we're faithful to you, that our desires would change, that we'd be set free from the kind of materialism that drives us all year long and claws so hard at us this time of year. Lord, I pray that we could be set free from that and liberated 
to being satisfied and filled that Christ really did come, that he really was with us, that we'd be so awakened to the power of Emmanuel with us that we could say, honestly, God, if this was it, you could dismiss me. I've seen enough, I've had enough, and your reward is rich enough. God, I pray that we can inherit that deep truth of how meaningful this season is and be freed from the, the burden of trying to buy and trying to make things look and feel and taste and be a certain way. And instead, enjoy the presence of Jesus and to really see it open our spiritual eyes as we walk each step forward in faith and faithfulness. In your name I pray, amen.